butter, what they do at the beginning before you ever sign up is they let you know fully what all the obstacles you will be facing are, whatever the hurdles are that you'll be facing. And I was listening to a podcast where they described why they would do that. Why would they tell you that you're going to do, you know, the different mile of mud or the great Everest climb or some other really careful, precarious plays on words that they do. And I was listening to a guy talk about why they do that. Why in the world would they tell them everything ahead of time? And they said, hey, if we don't tell people the obstacles that are coming, uh, you get a really, really small group of people that sign up sight unseen, and we, like, to make money off these things. So the majority of people will not sign up for something called a tough mutter if they don't have some idea exactly how tough is it gonna be. Does that make sense? So like, how many miles do I have to crawl in the mud? Like, how long am I gonna get shocked by these live wires hanging from the sky? Like, how many times do I have to climb through an ice bath? Wait, twice? Why do it twice? Once is enough, right? But apparently twice shows that you're really, really tough mutter. Um, as we jump in, we're going to be in Revelation, and I just want to say this off the jump. There are three obstacles that we're all facing. I'm going to name them, and then in one statement, I'm going to try clearing all three of them. And then we're going to jump into Revelation 2 because we got work to do in there. But I'm fully aware that I am jumping into one of the most, uh, what's a good word, explosive, misunderstood books of the challenging, ambiguous books of the Bible, because the majority of the events uh, we don't quite get. Some of them are so rooted in the past and the story of Israel that we miss it, and then the end of the book hasn't yet happened, so we have no real taste what a world without sin could ever even possibly look like. So the first thing is we're going to be in the book of Revelation. That's a big enough deal in and of itself. Uh, pro tip, it's the book of Revelation, not the book of Revelations. Um, if you're ever getting a tattoo, let your tattoo artist know that. Uh, that's a very common slip of the tongue that I've watched more than one tattoo be like, Revelations, and I don't have the heart to tell them. Like, it's not a book of the Bible, so I guess you can say whatever you want. But uh, Revelation, what, what am I reading? What book is it? Uh, a second one is you're reading someone else's mail. Uh, this book was written to seven real churches, uh, probably about the size of this community, spread throughout a mail route— in ancient, ancient Roman times. So you're reading, what we're reading is someone else's mail. Uh, now it has plenty to do with us, but it wasn't written to us as a first audience. Uh, John, the author, is going to say a few times before we even got to our text that, hey, write this down for these seven churches. And there was a point to that. And then the last thing, which we all love to admit, is our confirmation bias. Uh, that is human beings have a tendency to come to a text or a scenario uh, and pick out the information that they feel like already affirms what they believe and dismiss the parts that might call them into something new. This isn't just us in this room. This is humanity. That's social psychology. Uh, that we have a tendency in our confirmation bias to think, oh, that was neat, but that's for someone else. Um, even though we're reading someone else's mail, I think the Spirit absolutely has things for us. And so in one clearing jump for those three hurdles, uh, let me read this to us. Uh, the book of Revelation is an unveiling in a symbolic vision. It's for every generation of the church as it reveals a historical pattern in the fulfillment of God's 
unfailing promise to reconcile heaven and earth back together. Uh, if you come from a different tradition and you're like, mm, I would like to talk some more about that, I am happy to do that. This is where we're starting. I'm happy to do that. I started out in multiple different places and it is confusing, like I said. But this is a way of looking at this, this unpacks and we'll look at it maybe at some point in a night, go through the whole book. That'll be a lot of fun. But it's a fulfillment of God's unfailing promise to reconcile heaven and earth. It was written to seven local churches to really encourage them to courageous faithfulness, not cowardly capitulation to the powers of false religion, military power, or economic security, and to call them to repentance so that they might be faithful to the end, even as Jesus is. And hear this, by the grace of Jesus and the power of the Spirit, the message is both a map and a mirror for us. Uh, this is not a book of secret codes, but universal temptations and the unfathomable power, justice, and beauty of God that confront our own idolatry and call us into faithfulness. Uh, if you're trying to write all that down, I will just send it out to you. Don't try that. But that's trying to make an attempt in one long jump to clear those hurdles, to say, hey, this isn't a book of secret codes. Revelation was actually written to seven churches that understood what it meant. So as much as Apache helicopters might seem like they could be the locusts, they would have had no frame of reference for that. The locusts were from the Old Testament. Uh, they would have known the different symbols because they are all laden in the Old Testament. We're a bit distant from that, so it takes us a little bit more work. Uh, thankfully, in the letters, there's not a whole bunch of that, so we can just dive right in. Uh, it's also reading someone else's mail, but it's someone else's mail that the Spirit uses to call us into the story and equip us for faithfulness. And I want us to press in past our confirmation bias and ask what could the Spirit of the living God be saying to us as we gather here in 2022, pulled from various places across this country into one room for tonight. I think the Spirit has something to share with us. And so as we do that, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to have Kaylee Ann come up and read uh, Revelation 2, 1 through 7. Uh, Jesus, you are the one who spoke the words that we're going to study, and so we pray for you to give us wisdom, to give us clarity, uh, to encourage our hearts and convict us where they need it. Uh, would we see the words of this text unfolding, and would you allow us to rightly align ourselves within the story that you've called us? God, we are a people who desperately want to experience your love and then share that with others. Would you take us a step further in that work here tonight? We love you, and we ask this in your name. Amen. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, who I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. We're jumping into a text, and uh, the voice that you hear those verses written will make all the difference probably of how you respond to them. Uh, it's a letter from Jesus. Jesus has commanded uh, John to write down this vision, this, this letter that he was going to send out. And so the whole letter of Revelation was written to these seven churches, and this is the first one up on the mail route. And so the first place they'd come to was Ephesus. It was a church that we know a lot about uh, because of the book of Ephesians. Timothy was pastoring there. First, second, third John were probably written into that same space. Uh, we've got Acts 19, which tells the story of when Paul showed up and started a riot uh, because he was preaching the good news and people threw all their magician stuff together. It was like millions of dollars. They lit it on fire and they're like, yo, we need to get rid of this dude because he's ruining our business. Like all that's recorded in the Bible. So we get a really good snapshot of who Ephesus was. And so it's kind of fun because a lot of times we're like, wait, what is that church again? I don't really know. And it's this one we get a super clear snapshot of. But the voice that we hear this spoken with is going to make all the difference. Uh, catch this. So if this verse, that letter, that note, let's say a note, right? That was less than a TikTok worth of space. Like it takes less than a minute to read that whole letter. And there's a beauty to that because we can just break it down a few times. Uh, imagine a passive-aggressive parent—imagine. Imagine a passive-aggressive parent saying those same words. Uh, it comes across as, hey, I'm going to give you all these things that I think you're doing really, really well, but what I'm waiting for is a slide in that one thing to make you feel really, really bad about the thing you're not doing. Right, and so yeah, you might have uh, done this with holiness, that's kind of a big deal. You got this right belief, that's kind of a big deal. Uh, but I'm gonna come at you kind of sideways and say, oh yeah, all that, but here's one thing that you're not quite doing right. Uh, anybody know people like that, that come in passive aggressive sideways, seem like they're being positive to you, but wanna get that one comment in just to slide on you. Or maybe if you hear it as a disappointed teacher. Hey, don't you remember I've taught you all these things? Uh, remember that whole love thing that is crucial in the book of Ephesians. I taught you all these things, and you got all these other things right, but you missed this main deal. And a, and a disappointed teacher looking down at and belittling, have you guys ever experienced that in school? A frustrated teacher who just wished you would have learned. Old school, they had the nuns that would smack your hands if you didn't get it right. Today, I know, right? That's, that was school. You can talk to Richie, ask him. Amen. He ain't joking. Um, a disappointed teacher looking down their face saying, why don't you get it yet? Or maybe even a well-intentioned therapist. Hey, here's all these things that you got going right. Uh, here's one area that you might want to kind of polish up a little bit. If we hear the message through those different lenses, the way we respond to it is very, very different. So I want to be sure that if you've got a Bible with red letters, that you remember who's saying these words to the church in Ephesus. Uh, this is Jesus. One chapter before, he revealed himself as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The self-sustaining sustainer, the uncreated creator, the one who was before all things in whom all things exist. But he's not just out there in power. This is the God that came that lived and died so that you might live and then resurrected and gave you a new heart. Like he's never called you to do anything that he never empowered you to do. We have to remember that. 
And then even in this particular verse, it says to the angel or the messenger in the church in Ephesus, uh, write this. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. So this is the God of power. Uh, this language, if you want to look into it, is from Malachi 4, tying it back to the Old Testament. This is the God of power who holds in his right hand. So when life's getting crazy and things are swerving and you're uncertain with the oppression, remember this. God is the one who holds it. Strength, power. And then it keeps going, and he walks among the seven lampstands. He's present. He's powerful. He's present. He's the Alpha, the Omega. He is the slain lamb, but also the Lion of Judah. This is the one communicating this message, the one who lived and died and resurrected and gave you a new heart, who called you together as a community that you've pushed the weight of your life in to say, yes, I love him, and yes, I want my life to be oriented around him. You're a community in a culture where the tidal waves are coming against you, the Roman emperor at the time, Domitian, most likely, was lighting Christians up just for fun at his parties. They'd already most likely endured the suffering of Nero. And they found life, and they're still going. Those are all really big things. And then Jesus says this to them, right? So imagine this. You're sitting in your little group, maybe in a living room, uh, and they're reading this letter. It's unpacking, and they're like, hey, we got a letter from John. Let's read it, and it starts listing off some stuff. Uh, these are the words of the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven lampstands. And you're like, yo, that's Jesus. I know it. And he says, I know your deeds. So you'd be kind of curious. What's he going to press in? Like, he knows what we're up to. This is kind of wild. It's not just a distant deity, right? It's a close, proximate, present king. And he starts to show how they have right beliefs and right behaviors. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know how you cannot tolerate wicked people. So you've got right doctrine, but then you've also got holiness. You don't allow people to just come in and as they come around the rotation, show up and be like, hey, I preach this Jesus and then preach crazy talk. He says, no, 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 you don't allow that. You don't allow people to come in and say, hey, you can love Jesus and serve all these other gods. You don't allow people to say, hey, you can love Jesus, but be a snake in business. Hey, you can love Jesus, but go around with whoever you want to. Hey, you can love Jesus and add on whatever other deity you want. He says, no, you don't even tolerate wicked people. He keeps going. And you have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not, and found them false. Uh, there's a bit of a circuit going on where people would say, hey, I'm an apostle of Jesus, and they show up in a town, and then they get welcomed in, and they'd receive all sorts of stuff. They'd get a place of priority because they were communicating good news. Uh, but the issue was not everybody doing it was doing it in a good way. Uh, some of them were super shady. Uh, some of them were just in it for the money. Some of them were preaching an entirely different God other than Jesus, and they were doing it on behalf of just making coin. And so since they were the first person on the circuit, Ephesus would often be the gatekeepers to be like, eh, like they had the big buzzer where they said, you're not getting through. Like you're not going on to the next one and we're gonna let them know that you're full of it. Like don't even try this here. This isn't of Jesus, which is a really big deal when you've got a super small Bible, when you've got super limited tradition because it's only maybe 40 years, 60 years, 70 years at most after Jesus. So it's kind of a big deal. He keeps going. Uh, you have persevered and endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Uh, this was not just being shadow banned on Instagram for posting too many times about Jesus. 
Uh, this was they were being lit up and they were the entertainment for the party. And not lit up as in it was a really lit party. It was lit up as in they would be covered in tar, stuck down the highway and lit up for people as they came in because they claimed the name of Jesus. This wasn't an abnormal thing. People were dying because they said, yes, I believe in Jesus. And Jesus says, I see that. You've had patient perseverance through even death and your community crumbling and people pressing in. I see that. I know you. And you're doing it for my name. Like, that's beautiful. Imagine the one that you're doing all this for comes in and say, hey, I see your work. I see what you're doing. I see your suffering. I see your loss. I see what you've been through. I know the way that you've lost business. I know the way that you've lost family. I know the way that you've lost wages. I know the way that you've lost friends. I know the way that you're no longer accepted into the neighborhood that you grew up in. I see all that. And you haven't grown weary in doing it. There's an affirmation that there's a lot of important things that they are doing well. In our language, this church was gospel-centered, it was missionally engaged, and it was staying the course in holiness, which is beautiful. Uh, but then the letter takes a little turn, doesn't it? And again, the voice that we hear this with will make all the difference. If we feel like it's somebody just coming at us sideways, all right, now you're gonna slide this one jab in? If we feel like it's a teacher who's glaring at us and disappointed that we don't quite get it, if we feel like it's a therapist who's just throwing out an option that I can't make you do it, but you might want to do this. Or if it's the good shepherd welcoming you into a way of life, it will change the entire way that we hear this next line. He reads, he writes, uh, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Uh, that word forsaken is a word um, that in other places, it's not just kind of like, hey, it dissipated, but you've pushed it away. There's an active nature to it, that you've pushed away the God of love. And so one of the questions that commentators want to go back and forth is where people who make their living writing about the Bible, they want to say, hey, was this love of God that they lost? Like this, this love of God that they lost? Or was it love of people? Uh, and I'm a lot more practical than that because all throughout my Bible it says, uh, if you don't love God, you won't love people. Uh, and so it's probably both. He's saying that, that that sacrificial motivation of your heart that responded to the love of God at first is no longer the fuel behind all this work. You're still doing all the stuff of Jesus, but you're doing it without the love of Jesus actually overflowing your heart. And I want nothing to do with it. He's coming at them saying like, hey, this really does matter. This isn't a small thing. I've been coaching uh, Caden's football team for a season now. And just so you guys know, um, they won more games than they've ever won their entire career. How many games did you win last season? One, that was 100% more than they won last season, so we take it. Um, and after every day, after the, so you know what we're working with. Uh, every time, every Saturday after the game, uh, or at halftime, we'd sit down, and I'd be like, hey guys, here's specific things that I see you doing really, really well. And I wasn't making any of them up. Like this kid, uh, you didn't pick your nose, but you hiked the ball. We're super stoked about that. Uh, this kid, uh, you stayed on the field the whole time. That's really, really good. Hey, you, you caught a ball and ran the right direction. We're celebrating that. That's, those are good things. Hey, you, you threw a touchdown pass. That's incredible. Hey, you, you ran the entire course of the field, and that was exciting, and we're really celebrating that. And we'd celebrate all those good things they were doing. But almost always, I would have to say, but here's another deal. We have to grab their flags 
Otherwise, they're going to score the ball every single time they touch it. Or, or, hey, one thing real quick. You guys have to actually run your routes. Otherwise, they're never going to throw the ball to where you're at, and they're going to intercept it every time. Uh, those two things we haven't quite dialed in, and those are really big deals when it comes to flag football. Uh, one, because the other team scores every time if you don't grab their flags. It's just the way it works. Uh, and the other one, if you don't run your routes, you'll never score yourself because you're not in the right place and they intercept the ball. And so there's a lot of good things they do, but there's a really, really important, crucial thing that they're missing. And without that, they won't have the result that they actually want. Jesus, coming into this church, says, hey, there's all these things that you're doing really well, but you're doing them without love, and that actually matters most. And so for my brain, I'm just thinking through it. I'm like, what was forsaken love? How do you get to that space? Maybe some of you guys have been there. Maybe you are there. And if you're not either one of those two, you will be there someday where you're caught in the cycle of doing the same things that you've done, which are good things. And it doesn't say stop them, but you're doing them without the same driving love that you once did them with. This is a risk, not just for the church in Ephesus, but the church in Mesa. Every church has to deal with this battle or they will lose in the most important thing. And so just to break it down for a second, how do we get there? I think uh, a lot of times I have couples come and talk to me, and I, just for the record, am not a therapist, but I do talk people through their marriages. Uh, Sometimes it's a bad marriage. Sometimes it's a really, really broken marriage. A lot of times I'll outsource them to someone else who's able to care with some of the particulars, but still I can point them the right direction. And so the, the most often thing that comes in between couples, and it's happened more than once, is that somebody will walk in and just be like, hey, I don't really love this person anymore. And what I know is that there's more to that story than that, right? Even if you walk in and say, hey, I just woke up this morning and I don't love him anymore. I'm like, well, there's going to be more to that story. Let's talk some more about that. Tell me what that looks like. And as people unpack that story, uh, usually one of two factors is played into it. The first one is distraction. Uh, That is maybe one spouse is dating their other wife, their phone, way too much. Uh, Or maybe somebody else has gotten really into their hobby or somebody else is really into their friend group. And it wasn't ill-intentioned, but there's just something else that has grabbed up more and more and more of the affections. Uh, Maybe it's you just watch a lot of Netflix together and you never really talk. Uh, Maybe it's the fact that you just read uh, a lot of books in the same room, but you never communicate about the thoughts. Over time, as this happens, it will slowly suck away the intimacy that used to be there. A second thing is a direct action. Somebody acted in a way that genuinely hurts, not just over time, but decisive actions that they can point to and say, hey, this is where they messed up. Uh, This is where they stole from me. This is where they lied to me. This is where they cheated on me. Whatever it was, all these things, there's moments that they can look at and say, hey, this is where it took place. There's direct action. I, I thought about putting disobedience, but that doesn't quite translate to like a relationship with other humans. Um, And so that idea of direct action, I'm making conscious choices that I know to us not being together. It's not so much distraction, but it's direct choices that have these implications that love is left in the rear view mirror, even if you're going through the motions of being married or dating or even being friends over a long period of time. Those are are two ways that can often happen. Uh, I want to give a third. It's not going to be on the screen, so don't look for it. Sometimes the... Sometimes intimacy bears fruit. 
Uh, sometimes love and passion bears fruit. Sometimes that's kids. Sometimes that's business. Sometimes that's a missional community. Sometimes that's a church. There's lots of things that we're passionate about, that we're willing to sacrifice for, for the good of others, that we give ourselves to, that then produce fruit. Right, so I really love the city of Mason. So I wanna see a church formed here. And so I dedicate parts of my life to seeing that happen. And as that happens, missional communities pop up across. But here's what can happen if we're not careful, even in religious things, even in Jesus things, that sometimes the fruit of what's born out of that passion starts to rob us from the passion itself. Some of you might be in this place, some of you might have experienced this, and so I don't want to speak lightly of it, but how many marriages are there that when kids move out of the house, the family falls apart? That didn't just happen all of a sudden. Uh, often there's these two things that have been at play for quite a long period of time, and now that the, the distraction or the fruit of that intimacy is gone, there's no love left, and people are like, what do I even do with this? Why am I even here? Uh, sometimes when it comes to loving, if you're a missional community leader, you can love or a ministry leader, whatever that looks like. You can create something out of love where you want to see people reached with the good news of Jesus, and that really matters. And then it starts to happen. But then you have all these people in your living room, and you're like, ah, I, I don't even want to be here anymore. I created this thing, and I don't even want to be a part of it anymore. Like, the love somehow seeps out with running the thing. And you have to keep going through the motions until either you explode or implode, probably. You're not long for it. And that's what Jesus is looking in, saying like, hey, you're doing all these things. But that love, which isn't just a feeling, it's that word agape, which is that sacrificial, self-giving pursuit of the good of others above ourselves, isn't there anymore. In a relationship, people often follow, start following new Instagram voices, right? They start following new accounts. Hey, I've been following this person. They're really telling me some good ideas and good habits. And so I put that through my scroll, and that's what I'm scrolling. And I'm just seeing all this good advice about what I should do now, right? I'll follow a few therapists, maybe a few dating coaches, or maybe like date your spouse or date your mate, whatever it is. And we'll just follow them and keep going. Um, that won't work. Uh, reading books. People start reading books. I know that's a little bit dated, but some of us still read them. Uh, start reading books on the topic. Self-help is the biggest, one of the biggest uh, categories in your bookstore because people really want to get help, and so they just want to read a book, though, and think that'll fix them. Or they ignore it till it really blows up, even when they know that there's symptoms of, hey, I don't really love anymore, and it seems like it's gone, but I'm just going to ignore it and hope it just gets better which will work about as well as your check engine light never being addressed. Eventually it will blow up and it will always be the most inopportune moment, I promise you. And we can do the same thing though when it comes to losing the love that's been driving the life of a gospel community or a church. We can start saying, maybe if we correct our doctrine and let's start reading new books and maybe there's a belief or some information I don't yet know that I need to get in my head. And so I'm gonna start looking at books and reading them and going after that. Uh, it's fun because we go to the book, of, uh, the people of Ephesus. Um, they had the book of Ephesians, right? So you're not gonna get a better doctrine book, I promise you. Well, Outside of the Bible, you're not going to get a better doctrine book than the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 1.10, 2.10, tells the beautiful story of God and how he's creating one humanity and reconciling heaven and earth together. And then he's showing how that works out all throughout the Roman household, throughout the rest of the book. It's incredible. He even puts in there, this is how we act in spiritual warfare, and then he sends them out. You are not going to get a better doctrinal book. It's not a matter of information for these people. 
They also had 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Timothy was uh, in Ephesus when Paul wrote to him. And then they get a letter from Jesus, right? Like that's as pure doctrine as you're going to get. Maybe the issue isn't just more information in our brain. And maybe you say, well, maybe if we just had different leaders, like these leaders that I'm following, man, they're just awful. Like they're no bueno. And that could be the case. But in Ephesus, it started with Paul. Um, I'm not sure if you know John, you know, the apostle Jesus loved, kind of a big deal, was also an elder there. They had Priscilla and Aquila, the uh, apostolic dream team, man and woman, who came in to build up churches from the ground up. Uh, they had Timothy as one of their pastors, also kind of a big deal. And then even in this moment, it says Jesus is there leading this church forward, also kind of a big deal. I don't think it was a leadership issue as much as it was something else. And maybe if we just stop tolerating sin, but he says you already don't do that. You don't have to white-knuckle purity, but the gospel frees you up to put away sin. And they were actually already doing that, so it wasn't a matter that they let sin creep in. Maybe if we had more miracles showing up, uh, and that's kind of like one of those plays that people do. They're like, hey, this just isn't a space for the miraculous and the rescuing to happen in God. And so maybe if we just had more miracles, then we'd have that passion and that drive. And you have to remember, Ephesus was the place where Paul literally uh, would give out his cloak because he was not even able to get to all the different places where he had to serve. Like people were sick and he wasn't able to get to him. So he's like, yo, here, take my cloak, right? Take my cloak. It's good for a few healings. Take that with him, give it to them, and miracles broke out. Uh, that's where demons were cast out. And the work from the early church says that was regular in their midst. It wasn't just a matter of more miraculous. And maybe if we just got back on mission, Let's just do some more stuff in Jesus' name, and maybe in doing that, it'll conjure up that feeling again. But the problem is that the nature of this text is Jesus is saying, we can do all the things of God without the love of God motivating us and flowing out of us, and he wants nothing to do with that. He doesn't want us doing stuff in his name, but without his love. And if that feels like, well, I'm lost then, don't know what to do. Where do I go? Um, let me just be your local hope dealer for just a second. Jesus literally tells us next how to walk in life. Like, like this is the words of Jesus. What do I do if I find myself there? What if I do if, I, if the love's gone? If I'm in a place of serving and I'm doing ministry and I'm leading my family and I'm leading my missional community, I'm leading a church, I'm leading this team, I'm leading this business, and, and my heart's not in it anymore. What do I do? Like, like, I know that it's leaked out. What do I do? Jesus says this. Consider or remember how far you've fallen. Think back. Remember where you used to be. Remember where you were in proximity to me. Remember when you understood that you were the new humanity filled with the Spirit of God to do the work of God in the city where God had sent you. I remember the beautiful picture this community was of diverse people who came together because the gospel was true. He's not doing this just for nostalgia, but when we look back, gratitude can burst forth. It's not just feel good, remember the good old days. We like that play, but he keeps going. He says, remember, and then he says, repent. So turn, change your mind reconsider the direction you're going. Take this off ramp because it's easy and it's accessible and it's right here. I'm telling you, remember that and then turn away from where you're headed. This isn't tricky. This isn't rocket science. Uh, I went on a trip with David uh, 
Comstock just a few weeks ago. We were going up to Sedona, and we were on our way out of my neighborhood. And I got just to Southern. So I live on, just for reference, I live on Southern and, what's the other road? Dobson. And so, right there, right? And so I was popping out of my neighborhood on Southern. It's literally the closest street I can get to. That's a major street. And as I was turning out on Southern, I realized I didn't have my sunglasses on. And I were about all of like 30 seconds from my house. And we're about to spend a few days in Sedona where it's really bright. Uh, and so David's like, do you want to turn back and get your sunglasses? And I looked at him in dead serious because, nope, we've come too far. We've come too far. I don't have time for that. Um, and so I kept going. And then you get on the 101, and then it really is too far, right? And then you get further, and it was like, that would have been so simple just to turn at this point when the invitation was there, and my eyes would have thanked me for the next three days. But in my stubbornness, I said, I, I see that you want, and that's the word repent. Turn from where you're going and turn back to something else. Uh, Jesus is saying, turn from the direction you're headed of a loveless life pursuing the things of God without the love of God fueling it, and turn back to me the source of life. And again, you'll love people, and you'll love me in a rightly ordered way. And the last thing he says is, and do the things you did at first. He doesn't even tell them to do something crazy, something new. He says, hey, those basic things that you used to do that maybe you've let slide since you got to be such an organized group of people, uh, since life had come and numbers had been added, since time had gone by and maybe some of the effects of suffering has been that cynicism started to create a callus on your heart. Remember what it used to be like. Repent and then return to doing the same things you used to do and do them again with me. And that's the invitation. Jesus gives the GPS coordinates to get back in a place of love with him and with others. And my fear would be that we're cruising along and that we feel some of those twinges, but we're like, man, we've come too far. I'm just gonna keep going with life. It'd be too much to turn back now. And the invitation of the good shepherd is no, 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 please come. This next part reminds us again that the text is written uh, to a community of people. And this is real. He says, uh, if you do not repent, there's a warning here, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Hey, if you guys don't turn and repent, your church won't exist. Uh, if, a, if a chef stops cooking meals for customers and starts filming his own YouTube show in the middle of a shift, what's going to happen to that chef? What do you do? You fire him, right? Because he's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. Thank you. That's the right answer. Uh, if a judge stops delivering verdicts and justice but starts calling out bingo numbers from the bench, what are you going to do? Fire the judge, hopefully. Jesus is saying, if a church stops loving, I will remove them from their position. I have no interest in a church that is big or flashy or about doing the works of God if the love of God is not motivating it. The size isn't the issue of that, the love is. And he says, I will literally take that lampstand away so you guys have a choice to make as a church. Do you wanna turn back to the things that you started doing or do you wanna continue on the path you're on? And then he gives them another shout out that they're, they hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which he also hates, which is probably a group that uh, mixed in some different sexual idolatry with some false teaching in the city of Ephesus because Artemis was there. He's like, hey, by the way, you guys still don't like those guys and neither do I, so please keep them far away from your community. When we started Missio, we started with uh, this lovely slogan. 
This was everywhere. It was on the, the signs when you walked in the door until we broke them all. Uh, if you go on your way out and you see the sign that's by the front door that you probably don't pay attention to, it's on there as well. Uh, this is what led the top of our website. We said, hey, we want to be about three things as a church. Uh, we want to love God, first and foremost. We want to love one another and love one another well. And we want to love Mesa, the city where we've been sent to be the people of God for the sake of the good news taking root here. And I think the implications are pretty straightforward for us. As a church, and if you're not from here, plug in your own place. Is this still true? Or have you noticed some of the leakage taking place in your own heart, where you love less than you used to? Maybe it's not fully bottomed out, but you'd be like, yo, as you're talking, I'm fully aware that I don't love God like I used to. I'm fully aware that I don't love one another. People are a source of frustration, not a place for me to be faithful to the call to make disciples. Or this city, I'm so cynical about the way it really works because I came in with kingdom hope and imagination and then reality pushed up against that and rather than enduring, I'm starting to grow cynical. Do we still love the way we used to? This is a real question for us to answer, not one of those spiritual church questions that we kick around and then go on to the next song. Because I think the, the warning would be just as true for us. Jesus doesn't need us here to do what he's going to do. We are able to be a part of what he's doing, and I absolutely love that. But if the story of Revelation teaches us anything, that is that Jesus does what Jesus is going to do, and people have the opportunity to join him in that, but he will do it regardless of whether or not they're faithful. So just allow me to read these few words over you. If you want to close your eyes as you hear them, I'm just going to ask some questions in succession. Have you noticed your affection for God cooling? Some s symptoms may be you're less attentive to him in your days. You're less interested in being in his presence. You aren't growing in generosity, but your home keeps getting remodels. Or your entertainment budget's going up, but your gratitude is not. Maybe you don't have any excitement for being formed by God because it's been too slow. Uh, maybe there's zero joy when it comes to being in his presence because there's other things you'd actually rather be doing. Or maybe you've noticed your affection to others in the community cooling. Maybe cynicism has replaced curiosity with how you approach people. Maybe hospitality has dropped and there's people in this room that have been here for years that have never been in your house when in the early days, there's no way that would have taken place. Maybe forgiveness is much slower. Maybe you barely gather on Sundays or at MCs, and when you do, it's pretty reluctant. Uh, maybe you're letting differences of preference separate you from your sisters and brothers that you were always meant to be unified with. Maybe you've noticed your affections for the place you've been called to cooling. Your calendar's filling up with things that insulate you and prioritize your own preferences. Uh, maybe you're finding yourself more cynical about the spaces you inhabit. Maybe you started to dream about the appeal of a place that would be easier. The land of unicorns and rainbows that are less affected by the stain of sin. Or maybe even just an escapism fantasy that has you anywhere but where you are. Now listen, we can do the same work, but if love isn't in it, it will absolutely shift the way we view our relationship with God. It won't be an overflow of gratitude and joy. It'll shift the way we view one another and we can tell the difference when somebody loves us and when somebody's using us or we're somebody else's religious product. 
and the city will respond very differently to a group of people that want to use them to build their platform versus a group of people that want to serve them in the name of Jesus. I had a friend named Tom. He was an older dude, way older dude. He spent a lot of his life on the streets in New York, um, and he used to, uh, we used to meet up for Chinese food, and it was like the best dirty Chinese food ever, like that really greasy stuff that you're like, this place should not be open, but I'm really glad it is. Um, and so we would just eat that together because it's what he loved. And so as we sat down, he would often talk about how he would be on the streets of New York City. Uh, and he would have people that regularly gave him charity. That's where I learned so much of how I love and serve people that are on the street is because I listened to his perspective on it. And he's like, hey, let me tell you something, Kevin. You can tell a difference when you're the one receiving a blessing if somebody views you as their project or if they're viewing you out of love. Like somebody can give me a dollar and make me feel like a million dollars and I go away grateful or they can give you a million dollars and you go away feeling the crud because there was no love in it. And he's like, you can just tell the difference. You can feel the difference. You experience that. We do it with other people. And we're like, I'll just white knuckle it through it. And then eventually maybe I'll come back to these people. And Jesus is saying, no, there's actually a remembrance and a repentance that needs to take place so that you can return to doing these things. And you won't naturally fall more in love with your city because your city doesn't always love you back. But because of Jesus, we can have a never-ending source of love that goes out. And so the words of Revelation echo out over us as well. Would we remember the heights from which we've fallen? Would we repent and return to doing the simple things we've done at first? If you find yourself in this place, uh, that's, the, that's the GPS coordinates to get back. If you're like, I'm not there right now, then please write this down because one day you will be. I promise you. And those GPS coordinates will be the exact same thing to bring you back. He ends this text. Whoever has ears, and this is where we get drawn into it because we're whoever's. Whoever has ears, at least I think you guys all do. We're looking around. Yeah. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious or the one who overcomes or the one who continues on, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Uh, all of these promises at the end of these verses all find their home if you just skip to the end of the chapter in Revelation 21 and 22. Every single promise that's made to the one who overcomes or the one is victorious is what Jesus says takes place when he finally comes back to set everything right. It's pretty exciting. I've never seen that before, that every one of these promises, this is the tree of life. The tree of life at the end of the story says that there's only one tree in the garden and its roots are on either side of the river and on it is enough fruit to heal the nations. He's saying one day you'll eat from that tree. No propensity for wrong. You will never lose your love and you'll be able to spend that eternally in my favor, experiencing my love and radiating that out towards other that fill my new creation world. And so he's calling the church in the midst of their suffering to do that now as a kingdom people, as a foretaste for the one day when it will finally and fully come. And so what are we gonna do with this? I'm gonna give us just the next few minutes with the words on the screen, look over them. And I'd say this, if you feel the Spirit convicting you towards something, this is about as close as you're going to get to an altar call from me. If you feel the Spirit convicting you of something, say, hey, you're continuing on this work, but the love's not there. And he's just, he's just opening that up for you. Please don't shut that down. Please don't say, man, I'm really glad so-and-so is here because they get to hear that. Or I really hope this person tunes in online because this would be good for them. This is a message I think the Spirit has for us. Are there areas where our love is cooling? And we're distancing 
maybe not even paying attention, but through distraction. And other things have been filling up the space where love once dwelled. Or maybe there are very specific direct actions that you're doing that you know are separating you from experiencing that love that God has for you. And those direct actions are leading to death in your life. Jesus is saying, you can remember how good the gospel is. Repent and return to me. I'm going to give a few minutes for you to look this over. If you want prayer, I will be up here, and I would love to pray over you. We will absolutely do that. Um, if you want to lean towards somebody else and that you know, that you trust, that you're in MC Life with, and you're like, hey, I'm feeling pressed in on this one. Will you pray for me? These are the right responses of the people of God when conviction sets in. It's not to say, yo, let me just check this out later, and I'll deal with it then. But it's to say, man, the Spirit's stirring something up. How do I do this now? Uh, don't be like Kevin with his sunglasses that says, I've come too far. I don't want to do that now. Then I have to explain stuff. You don't have to explain anything. Just say, will you pray to me to somebody else? And they will pray over you. Or come up front, I would love to pray over you. Or maybe you just need to do some business with Jesus because he's working on your heart and he's pointing some stuff out. And you're like, I can see myself going that way. Jesus, what does this mean? Then just read these words. Pray to him. Take the next five minutes and do that. You're welcome to. And then we'll come to the table together in just a few minutes. I'm going to give us space for the spirit to continue to do the work. Because as a church family, I don't want that lampstand taken away because we ignored the warnings. I want to experience the life that Jesus has. So Jesus, would you continue the work that you started? Would we feel affirmed in the things that we are doing well and you celebrate in us? But if there are specific places where love is dwindling, would you make that known now? And we'll thank you for that. And pray to you continue to work. In Jesus' name, amen.